of socio-political issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Welcome to episode 38 of You Don't Have to Yell, sanitized after each use for your safety. It's the bad boy of nonpartisan political podcasting here with your weekly dose of the world outside the latest dumb thing people are choosing to fight about. Now, last week, we talked with Tara Sinclair about the impact the growing federal debt could have on the U.S.'s ability to both fund our obligations and deal with future pandemics, which was the perfect intro to this week's guest. Joanne Weiner, in addition to being a professor of economics at George Washington University, computer programmer, and log rolling champion, I am 100% serious about that last part, is also a renowned expert on taxes, and she was kind enough to take the time to speak with me earlier in March about our tax code and the impact it has on the economy. Now, in my hour-long conversation with Joanne, I picked up one thing about the tax code that it's less about economic growth and more about what choices we want to make for ourselves and which ones we want to leave to the government. Also, I want you all to listen to a reference to my kids being home with fevers. I recorded this in March, and there's a little backstory I'm going to share at the end of the episode. But without further ado, Joanne Weiner. Just from what I've gathered of you, you know, you're an economist, a computer programmer, You've written for the Washington Post. Is there any other, are there any other surprises you have in there, like you know, Bigfoot Hunter or anything like that? Or you know, I am from Oregon. I grew up there, and I, I, I when I was a when I was a young lass, I did win a log rolling championship. Uh, my mom was my last competitor. Okay, so. I'm glad I asked the question. <laughs> yeah, um, but I was born in Wisconsin, and so I have a deep connection with the heartland of you of the united states of america okay so. cool i thought when you said oregon i yeah. thought for a second you were going to come out with a bigfoot story so um i almost did but i've never seen bigfoot but i i do follow the the news yeah i'll <laughs> have to i won't take up time you know i know i won't take up time <laughs> talking about this but in one of my past lives was a stand-up comedian was in stand-up comedy and i actually performed at a benefit for a bigfoot museum up in uh up in maine and and i'm actually i'm kind of like i used to be a big kind of bigfoot geek and and whatnot and and read all you know just kind of keep up on it and whatever but uh but i will tell you nothing turns the bigfoot audience off more than if you tell a joke related to the possibility that bigfoot might not exist like Ooh, yeah. oh yeah they freeze yeah yeah I- that's why I said I came close to spotting Bigfoot, but just missed apparently. All right, well, we'll just say just missed, <laughs> so you don't get the Bigfoot crowd against you. Um, yeah. yeah. So my last name is, by the way, pronounced Weiner. I I looked it up, but thank you for telling me. You did. I I, okay. I, I I scoured YouTube, and I'm like, I have to get because you probably get asked that question all the time. So I. Well, it's my husband's last name. I was Martin's before. Oh, really? But that's okay. Well, look at you yeah, taking. Yeah. Well, so my my wife took on a last name Sally. So you two should exchange notes because. <laughs> I would love. Yeah, to. I think you both you have kids. We do. I have four. Okay, yeah. lucky you. I only have three. Oh, do you know what? But I wanted this. I wanted the same last name as my kids. So oh, perfect. Okay. Motivation. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah, we we um, yeah, we had two, and we wanted three. The f- and uh, and then we had three, and we realized we were really cut out for two. Um, and then uh, and then the fourth came along. So um, but now they're all. I think generally once they all start using the bathroom by themselves, it gets a little easier. So <laughs> you know. We're, we're, and then when they start driving themselves, so you got you got a ways to go uh, there. Yeah, I've got another <laughs> four years until my daughter, and then it's like one after the other. So we're we're ready. Um, and actually, good sort of caveat as well: they are all home. Well, three of them are home with fevers today, so um, you may hear some yelling in the background. Did you go to Harvard? Is that right, or or spend some time at Harvard, or no? Both. I was a grad. I I got my PhD at Harvard. Got it. Um, and I lived in the, uh, I was one of those, what do you call them, RAs yeah. in um, Kirkland House. Oh, got it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, you, you never would have had a reason to go to Dedham. I can 
tell you that much. So um, no? no, I mean, it's <laughs> fine. We have the oldest wooden frame house in North America. That's our, our claim to fame. And until uh, my last, the last episode I recorded, I thought we were the home of taxpayer-funded public schools, but it turns out we're not. So, oh, yeah, well. Oh, my, my son is a tough grad, and he just got back from a weekend of visiting the Jumbos. He loves it up there. Oh, yeah, nice, nice. Yeah. And now, so you're in, are you in D.C., or are you just outside then? I actually live in D.C. We bought our house back in 92. Okay. And apart from that stint in Brussels, we've lived here um, ever since. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and um, you saw from my bio, I actually went to college at Berkeley. Yes, I saw. I mean, undergrad degree there. Uh, way back when I thought public schools were the only way to go. Yeah, you've changed your mind? Well, you sort of apply all over the place. You go to the best grad school you get into. Yeah. I, I really wanted to do taxes. And at the time, um, uh, the U.S. Congress was just about to do, they were in the middle of doing tax reform. This was way back in the early 80s. And at the and uh, the best public finance economists were up in um, Cambridge, so so I ended up at Harvard. Okay, so you followed the economists. I did. All right. Yeah, I went up. I took the train up. I met with them at people at MIT and at Harvard, and so. Yeah. Yeah. Voila. All right. Well, I I don't think we can blame you for that. Um, yeah. yeah, that actually. <laughs> Good choice. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. I, I don't think anyone's going to knock you for choosing Harvard. Let's put it that way. So, like, like I think your public university dedication can only go so far. You know, much like <laughs> when Harvard knocks, uh, you just pick up. I was such a snob. I wouldn't even apply to a private school. <laughs> really? And yet, no, and yet, no. and yet, they found you. They got you. Well, I mean, I, for for college, oh. by by grad school, I was I was broke. All right, got so, it, yeah. got it. Okay, oh. okay. So you know, it's funny. So you that that actually kind of segues pretty nicely into into you know one of the one of the first things I wanted to ask you about because um, I grew up in a in a proper Republican household. Um, we were you know Massachusetts Republicans, so we're sort of like the Canadian Football League of Republicans. You know, not quite. Um, not, not not quite the reddest, um, but you know the mantra that the mantra that I was brought up with was the the mantra that you were seeing in the eighties, which is uh, less taxes means people have more money to spend means more economic growth, and uh, and now I still live in Massachusetts, uh, as you know, so uh, and our economy seems to I think be faring maybe a little better than some states with substantially lower tax rates. So is there any relationship? between tax rates and the economy, or is that just a myth? Well, um, there is a relationship. It probably depends upon who you talk to mm -hmm. and what, what time period that they're talking about. Um, it's also uh, the type of tax as well. So um, overall, I don't think there is any statistical connection between the level of tax rates and economic growth. Mm -hmm. So you might see, you know, data points that show as X marginal rates go up, economic growth goes the other direction, but it's really hard to find something that is actually that is causal. So they might be correlated, but not not causal. Mm -hmm. So so I would say that that's generally not true, but you can find cases where, for example, if you were to increase the tax rate on capital income. Mm -hmm. And so capital would move out of the place where it's being taxed because it, it can with the push of a button. So you might find that your growth in capital income is smaller the higher capital income tax rates are. Okay. It's less clear when you're talking about workers because they can't move as easily. Mm -hmm. So whereas you might find people in the area where I live, the, uh, the what we call the DMV, the District Maryland, Virginia. Mm -hmm. So if any, if any, in, if any one of those places has too high a tax rate on workers, they might easily move across the border. So we do see a lot of people who move to Virginia instead of living in DC. So there's some of that as well at the labor level, but overall there's so much going on that all of the things that affect where, what affects GDP growth um, is generally overwhelmed by, by the tax. Impact. Got it. Got it. And so I guess the, the second part of that is, you know, I have a lot of friends who, ascribe to the the soak the rich form of taxation and you know one of the things they'll highlight is they'll go back to you know earlier in the 20th century when the marginal tax rate was in the neighborhood of 90 percent or the top ma marginal tax rate and so i assume then there'd be kind of no correlation there between 
taxation and income inequality or am I, am I wrong there? Well, you said taxation and income inequality rather than taxation and growth. So um, way back in those Kennedy era, mm-hmm. um, yes, the top marginal rate did, you know, exceed you know, 90%, but the level at which it was imposed was so high that actually not very many people would have, would have paid it. So that's something that you have to keep, keep track of when you're talking about the top rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that it only applies on the marginal dollar above a certain amount. And so um, but there was generally a sense, though, that those tax rates were pretty high. So because, you know, <laughs> this was long before the, the Laffer curve came about. <laughs> but the Laffer curve, as you know, says if you cut tax rates, if tax rates are sufficiently high, then if you cut them, you might get more revenue than otherwise. And that's the simple logic that you collect no tax revenue if the tax rate is zero, mm-hmm. and you're probably going to collect no tax revenue if the tax rate is 100%. Mm-hmm. So somewhere in between those two points, you collect something. <laughs> okay. So if it's 100 and you go to 99, you'll collect something. Okay. But I think most people think that we're not nearly at the levels where uh, cutting tax rates would actually increase your tax revenues, except that might have been the case back, you know, more than 60 years ago in the early Kennedy years. So there's no way that we're the U.S. is going to go back to rates at those levels. But it is true that I think I'd have to double check. But I think when Reagan, Ronald Reagan, became president in 1981, I think the top rate might have been 70 percent. Yeah, I mean, I remember reading about Reagan's Reagan's conversion to the Republican Party, and and I could be wrong on this story, but my recollection is that. He was thinking about doing another movie, and it was his accountant who told him, well, if you get paid anymore, you're actually going to make less due to the tax code. And yeah. that was one of the things that you know, led him down that road of um, that led him down that road of, uh, of again, sort of the, the, the trickle-down school that he, uh, yeah. that, that, that he followed uh, as, as president. Um, and so, well, part of, part of what was so great about the tax reform that happened, and it began at the Treasury Department in the early '80s with Treasury One and Treasury Two. And by the way, I worked at the Treasury Department in the 1990s, as a, right after I got my PhD. So I was a career person. But that was the the heyday of of tax reform, and it truly was a tax reform in what what eventually became the Tax Reform Act of 1986. Is that it's it did stuff like. The president then didn't like, which was if I'm going to make more, it makes no sense for me to earn more money because so much will be taken away in taxes. Mm-hmm. Can't you find another way to pay me? And so, yes, of course, smart people they did. They said, well, you know, maybe not Ronald Reagan, but a typical employee. Well, what if we gave you a car instead of a salary? Or what if we paid for your vacation? Or what if we gave you a not tax benefit? So people started getting paid in things that were not taxable. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine how how those things proliferated because if the tax rate really is that high, if you lose 70 cents of every extra dollar you earn, you're going to say, hey, wait a second, can't I get this money some other way? Not that I'm going to stop working because I like to work, mm-hmm. but can I get another compensation another way? So the tax code became riddled with these kinds of things. And that's where the reform came through is that a lot of those things were taken away in exchange for cutting those marginal rates down from those really very high levels. Okay. Okay. Understood. So, so, so ultimately they, they were able to cut the tax rates, but they also included more in that taxation or. That's right. right. Yeah. The, the, the simple way to look at it is that they brought into the base and lowered the rates. Okay. Okay. So maybe, you know, jumping back to what I was, Mm -hmm. what I asked earlier about income inequality is, you know, we have a situation now where if you look at the the wealthiest people in this country, the majority of their money is either in is in stock effectively or investments more or less, which are taxed at a much more favorable rate compared to income. And mm-hmm. especially in the tech sector, uh, you have situations where people where part of people's compensation is in stock. And if they hold on to it long enough, they're paying you know, 20% on that rather than whatever their income, um, (laughs) whatever their income bracket would be. Is there, is there some merit to the argument that maybe that should be reexamined given, or, or maybe that's another sort of free car, so to speak, uh, in our tax system or am I off base? You might say, okay, these, these, let me just focus on the tech sector and getting its compensation in the form of stock options. Mm -hmm. So, 
they'll allow the the executive to buy shares at a certain price, and the price will be something that's probably higher than the the current you know current price. But if the stock price goes up a lot, then they get a real big benefit because suppose it allows them to buy it at thirty five dollars, and the price goes up to hundred. They they really make out like bandits. Mm -hmm. One reason why companies decided to start giving stock options because the stock price was going up so fast. That's why I'm focusing on the tech sector. Mm -hmm. So way, way back, and I wrote an article about about this when I used to write for Tax Notes, a, a tax publication, um, and it was about stock options. And Congress thought that executives and and bigwigs at these kinds of companies were making too much money. So they said, you can only pay people a certain dollar amount. Let's, I don't recall the level, but let's just say it's a million dollars. You got to cap those top salaries at a million. Congress said, okay, we're done with that now. We're going we're gonna to deal with the income inequality by not letting companies pay people more than a certain amount. Well, obviously, the <laughs> they're smarter than the average bear. Mm -hmm. And they said, okay. We'll leave your salary at a million. You can go look at the annual reports to actually find this in here and say, but they will give you stock options with a certain value, and the stock options aren't taxable until they're exercised. So a good intention, and you can look, I think it's through the Clinton years, the 1990s. You can then see how salaries were had been going up. They stopped, but then if you break down the executive's compensation, there's a column for salary, and then there's a column for stock options, and that second column dwarfs the first. But again, that's not taxable until they actually exercise them. So should stock options be cash be taxed when they're issued? Probably not. But is it a, is it a form of compensation that might need to be addressed? Oh, certainly. Yeah, certainly. That's so I had no idea. So now just just to make sure I'm understanding this right. You're saying there was a there was some reform done around how much you could pay executives in base salary. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. And that's when the shift from salary to equity sort of happened in is that correct am i understanding you right there or am i incorrect you are right yep and um yeah it's it was uh, you know an unintended consequence you know the good the good intention of keeping salaries down but um it led to the stock options but the real the real scandal with the stock options came about and this actually was a pulitzer prize winning story by uh, a wall street journal reporter finding that um Stock options were being backdated mm -hmm. to have them be issued at a time when it was more favorable for the executive to have received them and exercised mm -hmm. them. And so it wasn't mere coincidence. And that was actually the scandal of the day, but it was quickly over overcome by the financial crisis, <laughs> which was a much bigger scandal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, but that was sort of the, the stock option story is that, is that um, it became the main form of compensation. If we look back prior to that reform of executive compensation and mm -hmm. folks were just being paid in cash, um, is there effectively like more stock money now in executive compensation out there than actual sort of taxable income across the board? So across, you know, from not just the tech sector, but kind of across all sectors? Probably. I don't, I don't follow it all that closely, but since the stock market has been going up, it's a much better way to receive your compensation than in the form of wages. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to drive our drive this van off in a territory that I didn't prepare you to discuss, but I'm really interested in the idea that potentially this reform that was set in the 90s to help address kind of the disparity or address wage disparity between executives and everybody else actually ended up creating this compensation structure that 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 more or less took all that extra compensation and just put it in an asset that's taxed at a far lower rate than their regular income would have been. Anything where you can defer the tax on your income is going to be, or if it's your income's unrealized, is going to have a lower effective tax rate than stuff that you pay income you pay tax on right away. So, so you can say that labor income, you go to your job, you get a salary, what we call in the tax world the W two income, that is taxed basically when you earn it. Mm -hmm. But capital gains, you can hang on to them, and until you realize the capital gain, it's unearned income. And, and then when you finally realize it, that's when you pay the tax. So if you, you know, had a stock, actually let's just say you bought it, it's not a stock option, if you bought it mm -hmm. at 100 and you hang on to it for five years and then sell it at, at 1000 you may have a $900 gain, but you've deferred all of that tax. 
for those, let's say you held it for 10 years. Mm -hmm. So it makes the effective tax rate, even if capital gains tax rate is the same as ordinary income rate, it's effectively much lower because you haven't paid taxes as you've gone on. A lot of people have said, why do we pay capital gains as, you know, along the way on an accrued basis mm -hmm. um, to, to try to eliminate that distortion or that difference in taxation? But that's gets into evaluation issues. Yeah. And it, 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 I guess like as I, as I look at this too, obviously, you know, I, I was really approaching this conversation. What is an intelligent way to look at taxation going into the next couple of decades? Because obviously we're at a situation where interest rates and tax rates are, are both at, um, are both at a historical low and, uh, an era where the level of debt we're accruing is obviously unsustainable. And so, you know, the big the big question is, what aspects of the tax code can we examine that might help us remove the need to take on debt and and pay for those things as we go along? And it seems to me, you know, as we're talking, one of the easiest or one of the the biggest areas to really look at is is kind of like this the is is how we tax investments effectively, how we tax stock or or, or options. Does mm -hmm. that sound? Am I hitting a double there, or no? Am I still on first base now? Yeah, no, no, you're 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 trying for a steal. Oh, really? I'm throw you out at second. All right, all right, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> you recall that I'm from Washington, home of the world champion national. I, I absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so you. <laughs> so so to take to, to talk about a few of your points there. So when you said we shouldn't be taking on any more debt, well, that might be true for you and your wife and your kids. Mm -hmm. Because you don't want to feel like, ah, I'm not going to be able to make my, my interest payments. What if I lose my job and I'm having to declare bankruptcy because I've got so much debt? Yes, taking on debt can be a burden for individuals who want to avoid, you know, avoid that problem. But for the U.S. government, it's probably not a big deal so long as our economy keeps on growing. And if you recall way back when, when uh, Piketty was his book on capital, mm -hmm. The whole book, you know, which is a thousand pages, I'll admit that I didn't read it, and I go along with most people on that, but I read all the excerpts and I saw him speak, so I got it. As long as the economy is growing faster than the rate of interest, you're golden. You're okay, because the income that you're earning, you can use to pay off your debt and you're fine. But that's why individuals worry about their debt burden, because it may be a case when their income is not going to be growing. They might lose their job. They might, you know, have something befall them, but that debt is not going to be forgiven just because they lost their job. Mm -hmm. So one of the problems with taking on such a large amount of debt at this point for the U.S. economy is that, yes, we are growing, but the rate of growth is not as high as projected or as you know, projected to be. And the slower we grow, the harder it is to pay our debt service. Mm. Now, we're helped by that because the Fed has managed to keep interest rates low and plans to cut them even further as the economy slows. But there's only, they can only go so low. But one reason why the U.S. deficit is not getting even bigger than it already is, it's just under a trillion dollars now, mm -hmm. which is not much as for a $22 trillion economy, but in absolute level, it's a big amount. But a lot of the slowing in the growth of the deficit is because the rate of payment of interest is slowing down. So even though our debt is growing every year because of the deficit it adds to the debt each year, mm -hmm. Because interest rates are low, that component of the federal budget is actually not growing as fast as it might otherwise. Mm. So is that a problem? Well, it, yeah. But anyway, we can still take on debt. So then you say, but what about this deficit? I just, I'm sort of nervous about it. I just don't like this idea that we are always spending more than we make. And I took a little, I took a look at some of the numbers from the Congressional Budget Office. Uh, they're the official scorekeeper for the U.S. government. They estimate spending and they get the tax estimates from the Joint Committee on Taxation. Mm -hmm. And rather remarkably, our deficit, the federal deficit now, is at something like 4.5% of GDP, of national of, of domestic income. Now, that's historically high for a time when, we're, when the economy is growing. Mm -hmm. It's usually around 3% or so. And so the problem, and this goes back to your, uh, your point about people getting older, that are, you know, we don't have a lot of immigrants. The rate of birth of, of, of uh, people here already is slowing down. We're not getting new people moving in and people are getting older. So this baby boom generation is getting older and living longer. So 
our age distribution is skewing towards the upper end where two things happen. One, the income taxes they pay go down. Two, the social security benefits they receive go up and then co coincident with that are their Medicare payments. So we've got this projection, it's just demographics, there's nothing complicated about it, but we can see that the spending is going up, the demands on spending, while the ability to bring in revenue is not going up. Mm. So whereas we have about a four and a half percent deficit now, it'll go much higher down the road because of those twin factors. And then if interest rates actually go up, well then, you know, it's gonna explode. I think uh, debt um, in just five years as a share of GDP is gonna be 100%, mm. 100%, which um, is still not, not necessarily bad. Uh, back when the European Union was creating the euro, mm another common currency, they needed to have pretty similar monetary policy. And one of the things was to have uh, a debt ratio below, I think it was 120% of GDP. A lot of the countries had ratios of 150, 60, 70, as they had to bring it down. Yeah. So it's not unheard of to have debt that high. It just does create a burden on it. And the other worrisome trend in the U.S. Uh, budget is that um, – most of the growth in spending is happening in these things that we don't have any control over. Mm -hmm. So it's the mandatory spending, as I mentioned, Social Security, Medicare. Mm -hmm. um, that's just growing up, and you have to change the law to stop that spending. And so discretionary spending, things like on the national parks, on defense, on um, you know all those good things, that's actually not a very that's that's a smaller and smaller share of the budget. So there's not a lot of wiggle room there to say, okay, we'll just cut waste, fraud, and abuse and stuff and stop foreign aid. That's not big enough to to really do very much. So, yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm uh, gloom and doom. Yeah. That's what economists are for. I know you you sent me back to the batter's <laughs> box with my head down. Uh, I know. Now, <laughs> well, come on up, Juan Soto. I'm coming back. I'm coming back. As always. I hope you're enjoying the show. And also, as always, I have a favor to ask. Our ability as a nation to respond to crises like this is entirely dependent on the health of our government and the health of the political dialogue within. And we don't need Dr. Fauci to tell us the prognosis for both is dire. Now, the goal of You Don't Have to Yell is to discuss important issues free of the partisan vitriol, and we're going to be making some changes in the coming weeks to help with that one even more. But right now, I need your help. Go to your device right now, like right, right now, and click share so everyone in your network gets a chance to take part in the conversation and hear what we're talking about here. You can also send them to ydhty.com or to our YouTube page if they're not podcast people such as yourselves. We need more people like you who are interested in more than dumb Twitter spats between people who should be working for the good of the country. And with that, back to the show. So are there, you know, given all the gloom and doom, given how terrible everything is going to be, um, is, is there, and, and I would say also, you know, given the fact that the the idea of raising taxes at this point, on the federal level at least, almost seems like an impossibility. You know, is there is there a way tax policy can be used to help solve that problem? Do you feel? And if so, kind of where where can we look? There are a lot of places that we can look. Um, I would say it's just starting with the personal income tax that. 35% is pretty low for a top marginal rate. I mean, I'm not saying go to European levels. I think in Belgium, the top marginal rate is 60%. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> We're not going back there, as I already said. But I think there's room at the top to tax more earned income. And again, that rate only applies to the, to the salaries you know, and, and wages of, of people. And much of the top level is in unearned income. So, But I think that, that there's definitely room to um, get more from the top. And that's what um, happened under uh, President, second President Bush and then, and then President Obama, mm -hmm. is that President Bush made tax cuts for everyone, and then Obama took them away for the top level. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Trump gave tax cuts to everyone, 
whoever comes next could raise them again for the top level. Yeah. And that would be fine. Their their top rate is even as an effective rate is actually pretty low. So that would that would be good. And by the way, when I'm talking about the top level, this is like the top one percent. I mean <laughs> mm-hmm. it's their income is two million and above. Mm-hmm. So that's you can I don't know if that's a lot or not very many people, but you know, two million and above. So there's a, there's some room there. And we don't have a we don't have an upper limit on it. So the in the top one percent you're at two million um the next level down the 95th percent is about four hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. so again i don't know how many people fall in there but four hundred thousand is a lot lower than two million so if you're just talking about the very um i think there is room to raise some more income in the um in the non i mean more tax revenue in the non-income area there are a few things and i don't want to get too technical because it can quickly diverge into incomprehensibility, okay. but <laughs> but in the in the nineteen in the twenty seventeen tax bill, there was a huge giveaway to what we call pass through companies. So they don't pay the corporate income tax, which was cut from thirty five to twenty one percent. They only pay an individual income tax rate. So. People argue that corporation corporate income is double taxed because it first pays that 21% corporate tax, and then when individuals receive a dividend, they pay an individual tax on that. So that's the double tax. A pass-through doesn't pay the corporate level tax. It's like a partnership. It all, all the income flows through to the partners. Well, that created a huge tax break for anyone who was not, a, not in the corporate form. And... Um, it got rid of the double taxation, but it also has allowed for a lot of gimmicks and ways to have entities classified as these pass-through or partnership entities and really not pay much tax at all. And you couple that with the deferred, the deferral of the capital gains tax and mm-hmm. all, it, it, it allows people who organize their businesses in that way to really minimize their taxes. Now, Congress said that they would put what they called guardrails in place to prevent entities coming these pastures that shouldn't mm-hmm. shouldn't but the word on the street is that the guardrails are pretty um they're not very well made yeah well and it it, it almost <laughs> seems like like the people writing the tax code can't move faster than people can figure out how to get around it and yeah that's true you know, yeah and yeah. and so is there do you have an example of like what would be a pass-through entity then oh a partnership okay Okay. And are, would businesses restructure specifically to take advantage of that, or would that be too onerous, would you say? Yes. And in fact, back when the U.S. corporate rate was 35%, which it was, I believe, from 93 until until um, the 2017 Act. So there's a lot of incentive for companies to reform as either partnerships or S-corporations, which is a technical term for these smaller partnerships. And so as a share of business income, um, I don't know the exact numbers, but let's say it, if it had been 60, 70% corporate, 30% pass through, it flipped. So it was a huge tax and huge taxes. And I mean, there's, there's people like to minimize their taxes. And back in the day, ta- the tax center was just seen as sort of backwater. Now the tax, the tax department at a big company can be seen as a profit center, you know, trying to minimize taxes. So, um, Anyway, so to go back to the comment about, well, what would be good taxes, there's a, there's a phrase that I learned way back when I first started graduate school, mm-hmm. when I took my tax class, uh, which was, you know, from, it's attributed to Huey Long in Louisiana. Don't tax you, don't tax me, tax the man behind the tree. <laughs> <laughs> so the best kind of taxes are the ones that people think someone else is paying. Mm-hmm. So, for example... Well, economists, theoretical economists would do all sorts of stuff about tax incidents and who really bears the burden of a tax and how does it get shifted and all. People love corporate income tax because it looks like someone else is paying mm-hmm. it. So even though it may, it may in, the, in the wash end up that the company actually reduces wages to cover the tax. So those are good kinds of taxes. The other kinds of good taxes are things that tax stuff that we don't want people to be doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's tons of evidence that the tax on tobacco has cut back on smoking. So that's a good thing. The federal government hasn't raised the tax on, on gas. Mm-hmm. It's like 18 cents a gallon since about 1993. Mm-hmm. There's no reason for that because 
we drive a lot and it wrecks the roads. And why shouldn't the people driving these cars pay some sort of fuel tax? Mm -hmm. And granted, there are state taxes on top of it, so it's it's more than 18 uh, in total, but that's something that should be raised. I think that carbon taxes should be something that we tax. In Europe, you asked me about yeah. that. Europe has a ton of taxes on transportation rate related um, activities. And, you know, it has a twofold benefit. It gets people to stop driving in private cars and trucks so much that puts it in public transport. And it also helps the environment. Now, they don't do it perfectly because the tax on diesel is lower than the tax on regular gas and diesel is more polluting than regular gas. But they're sort of going along it in the right way by having a range of taxes that are trying to deal with um, carbon um, emissions. Yeah. And the U.S. hasn't really had much in the carbon area. We've got a few places with cap and trade, a few regions that are that are trying to control pollution that way. But Europe has a whole cap and trade system euro-wide where actually the permits to trade are bought and sold all the time, just like a stock on Wall Street. It works great. Yeah, and that was actually that, the, the interesting thing I always found about Europe is that – is, is the way they tax consumption. And I remember, this is a few years back, I remember I, I was in Sweden and uh, and I was at the, the hotel bar and I ordered a couple drinks. And when I got my bill, I think I, it was three drinks total and it ended up coming out to 75 bucks. And at first, you know, I thought 75 bucks for, for a drink, I was a little, you know, I was a little put off by it. And then I thought, yeah, but, if I needed an appendectomy, it wouldn't cost me anything. So in a way, maybe I'll take the more expensive whiskey and the less expensive appendectomy. Um, do you, I, I feel like just, you know, <laughs> you like that logic. Um, I, I, you know, I, I feel like, I feel like Europe does a, does a better job overall taxing consumption than we do. Okay. So, so basically would you rather, Choose have the choice between an appendectomy or a free or a drink. Yes. And you're saying, well, I want someone else to choose for me. So if I'm in Europe, they've chosen to give me a free app appendectomy, but they're going to they're, they, they're going to charge me for my drink. Mm -hmm. In the U.S., they say you choose what you want to do. If you want to buy the drink, okay, but then you're not getting a free appendectomy. <laughs> <laughs> you're not getting your appendix out for yeah. free. Um, so. One of the things is, is that if you, and I don't want to delve into your personal 1040 because you, you know, you're going to be filing it in a month <laughs> or so, but <laughs> if you were to imagine that, let's put the United States system, just transfer it all over to the Europe system and say, okay, everyone, I'm this, I'm the, the planner and um, I'm going to decide that we need to provide these things to all of our citizens. And I'm putting it, framing it this way because, in fact, that is sort of what's happening in the, in the current presidential election. Mm -hmm. Is that one side wants to say, let's have the government provide these things. And the other says, no, let's keep taxes low and let people. Mm -hmm. So if you were to take the U.S. system and say, okay, let's plop you all in Europe. And why don't we choose Denmark? Because, you know, we know a lot about Denmark. Mm -hmm. So... If you were to be do, if you were to do that, you would Americans, the typical American, the Dan American, mm -hmm. yes, <laughs> would go from paying roughly sixteen percent of income overall in taxes. That's what the federal government collects as a share of GDP. Sixteen percent in the U.S. this past year. It would go to in Denmark forty-eight, three times as high. Now you say, oh, but wait a minute! You've only told half the story. That's the tax. If I'm going to move to this system, you system, you better give me the transfer. That's what we call it in technical terms. You tax and transfer. So you'd say, okay, but now that the government has all that money, so I'm no longer, I'm no longer um, buying my own private insurance at twenty-five thousand dollars a year, which might be what a typical premium is for a family of six like yours. I don't know. So you say, but that's not going out the door anymore. I'm not buying it. I'm going to get it now from the government. So when I go to the hospital, I get whatever I want. You'd have to convince people that that is actually going to happen. Mm. That the taxes that you're now, the higher taxes you're now paying actually go towards things you want. And that's where the complications arrive, arise. Because I started asking people, tell me, what's your favorite tax? Yeah. What's your favorite tax? And like, they're looking at me like, are you crazy? You think I have a favorite tax? Yeah. <laughs> and I said, okay, well, let's, let's rephrase it. What's your least favorite? Anyway, um, so 
So most people, you know, really don't mind paying taxes, but they would say, but I want to make sure it goes to things I like. So what I really don't like about my taxes is that I don't want the government to spend it on defense. Mm. And someone might say, look, I saved, I gave up to put my, my kids through school. And now you're saying that I should forgive, this is a little bit off topic, but forgive the debt of people who didn't save mm -hmm. and borrowed? What about what about the, the the life of giving of giving up that I did the sacrifices I made in that and those people who didn't so you know and, and then to say like on the health care well if it's if you get something for nothing it's probably worth that mm -hmm. and so there's a real problem with insurance and again no I'll give the technical term but but then let it drop but the whole problem with moral hazard mm -hmm. is that if you know you're going to get re Reimbursed for something. You don't care if you lose mm -hmm. it, whether it's because your kids know that you and your wife are going to <laughs> come pick them up if they crash their car, or um, if you know that you've got um, car insurance, and so if you get in an accident, you, you don't have to be quite as careful. I mean, it's a it's it's a strange thing because you'd say, well, who would want their house to burn down? But you can say, if 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 I know I'm going to be completely reimbursed and made whole again, you're going to be less careful. So one of the problems with having the system I'm arguing in Denmark is that you get this kind of stuff where people might not be quite as careful. By the way, I gave birth to a kid in Belgium and here in D.C. I also had knee surgery in Belgium and in D.C. So I've used both systems. I worked in Belgium at the university. I work here. There's no doubt that the out-of-pocket expenses were much lower mm -hmm. in Belgium than here. No doubt. Um, but I only lived there for seven years and only paid in the system for that long. So how does Europe do it? I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's partly of what you're used to. Mm -hmm. You know, like I said, we would never in the U.S. go back to a top marginal rate of 70%. Never. We've been too low for too long. So part of the problem is, of going to a Europe-style thing is that it'd be very difficult to convince Americans that I'll be willing to give you my raise my taxes and you are going to promise government to give it back now there's a way that we can look at to see to what extent that happens in governments mm -hmm. there's something called the gini coefficient g-i-n-i mm -hmm. and it goes from zero to one if it's if the gini coefficient is one it means one person has all the income in the economy <laughs> okay if it's if it's that's how it's easy to remember yeah. if it's zero that everyone has the same share yeah so People measure this, and it's a good measure because you can sort of agree on how it's measured around around the world. So, so a lot of a lot of countries do have very high Gini coefficients mm -hmm. um, because there's great income inequality in some developing countries. But by way of comparison, you can look at how unequal is income at the market level before you've done any taxes and transferring. Because in our progressive income tax system, we tax the rich to give to the poor. Mm -hmm. So you're doing some redistribution. So in the U.S., before we do any of that, our Gini coefficient, and I got this from the CBO, is about 0.52. That's about halfway there. Okay. In Europe, in the EU, and I'm only talking about the EU when I say Europe, it's from 0.36 to 0.46. So some places it's much lower, some places it goes, it approaches it. Then you say, okay, so it's unequal. Now let's make all these transfers that we're talking about. Let's tax people and then let's give them free stuff. You know, mm -hmm. your appendix is out for free and in, in exchange, you've paid high taxes. Mm -hmm. So the U.S. does that. We transfer a lot to people at the low income level. And in fact, the lowest, the least well-off people end up getting tax refunds. They don't pay any taxes because their transfers, their net benefits are higher than the taxes they might pay. So the U.S. gets its GD coefficient down to about 0.44 from all that. So it's pretty yeah. good. Europeans get it down to about 0.23, 0.3. Much bigger, much bigger transfer happening. Yeah. So the problem, I think, with going to a system where you'd say, I'd love to get my appendix out for free, is that you're taking the risk that you've paid for something and the government may decide to take it back. Yes. So they decide, oh, you know, we, we're not really getting as much revenue as we thought we would, so we're only going to pay for half of your appendix. Mm -hmm. And you say, but wait a minute, i got to get the whole thing out. <laughs> Don't leave half in there. <laughs> And that, that, I think, is one of the real problems. And it's actually one of the things with the Social Security system. That is not a means-tested system. 
no matter how well off you are, you get your Social Security benefits. Now, part of the benefits will be taxed, but one reason that, that the government tends to keep benefits as promised is because everyone says, you promised that when I paid my payroll taxes when working, that you would pay me my pension when I retired. Mm -hmm. And if the U.S. breaks that contract with Social Security and Social Security becomes a means-tested program, well, then it goes into all those other programs where people say, you're paying people not to work or, you know, why do these undeserving people get it? So Social Security holds because of that promise that the government so far, it's scaled back on some things, but it has not broken the promise of getting Social Security. Yeah. And that, that actually, that was my, my big issue with the overall, the European approach to tax and government financing, which is that those costs still exist. And even though the out-of-pocket cost for your average citizen might be minimal. They're kind of buried in this budget, and 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 I do think, and I'll, I'll ask for your opinion as as an economist on this. You know, I do feel like there is some benefit to structures being tested by uh, by demand and 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 by just ability to pay. And a great example is education, where you know the cost of university educations, the cost of education on the whole is growing. And even though it may be buried somewhere in the budgets of Ireland and France and Belgium and so on, it still exists. It is still eating up more of that budget. Uh, whereas in the U.S., it seems that that model is being tested a little harder because everybody here kind of bears the cost outright. And so yeah. does that... Am, am I making sense there? Or does that does that resonate at all? Or? It does make sense. Yeah. You, you're, you're making sense. You're, you're back on All the right. Um, <laughs> So on the education front, you know, yes, the, the, the cost of the education is, you know, there are a lot of free places in, in Europe. Mm -hmm. And I taught at the, actually, it's called the Free University of, of Brussels, okay. the ULD mm -hmm. in French. Um, but it was free of religion, not free. Oh. <laughs> That's why it was, it, was, it was a counterpoint to the Catholic University. Got it. Okay. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's much less expensive. That said, a lot of people, when they want to get the best education, want to go elsewhere. Mm. So that's not necessarily dollar-related. What I think is actually the bigger problem, and, and if I could change, divert government spending anywhere, I would divert it to education. I would say that that is the best way to get people, give people the tools to get ahead in life. Mm -hmm. That education, education, education. And so, and it's got to start at a young age, like preschool. There's clear evidence that that has a big ROI, return on investment. Mm -hmm. So, so when I went to the University of California, Berkeley, um, fees were very low. In fact, I was out of state the first year and then I became in state. Um, fees were very low and very affordable. And I've talked to my classmates and said, did you worry about paying for college? No, no. My parents weren't worried. They could pay for all of us. There's not a single person now who says that about their children mm -hmm. who are still in California. And so part of what happened in California, and, and it's a story told across the United States, but in California, because I was there, I recall it, property taxes had gotten really high. Mm -hmm. So they passed a property tax limitation known as Prop 13. And that was really the beginning of the tax revolt, about 1978. So you recall Reagan from California got elected in 1980, mm -hmm. coming out of that atmosphere so ever since these tax limits were put in place, states have had to figure out how to fund things. And between the, the limit on property tax revenues, and there, there was a legitimate reason for it because grandma had a nice little bungalow on Newport Beach where she could no longer afford her property taxes because the value of the house had gone up so much. I would argue that there were better ways to limit that than to put a blanket restriction on it, but that's not what mm -hmm. happened. And then the other thing that happened in California was this get tough on crime, spend more money on the criminal system, criminal justice, mm -hmm. also build more prisons. And three strikes and you're out, you're in prison for a really, 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 really long time. And sadly, a few years ago, California started spending more on prisons than on education. Mm. Now, there are a lot of explanations for that. A lot of the three strikes you're out were, you know, shoplifting and, and things like that. It's hard to, to go back and put that back in the bottle. Mm -hmm. But again, the taking away money from education means that people are saying, I don't want my taxes to go to these kinds of things. If they could go to education, it would. 
Okay, let me give a charitable contribution to my alma mater. And that's a tax incentive. So if I were to say, let's make it more favorable for tax breaks for things we want people to do. So let's give a charitable contribution. Now there's other issues involved with that, but let's encourage behavior by giving a tax break. Let's discourage behavior by raising taxes. So, so cut the price for education, raise the price for driving your homework. Okay. And those are the kinds of changes um, that I that I would make. So, you know, there's a there's this you're 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 a former comedian, stand up comedian. So yeah. There's a joke I like to say about taxes. Okay. <laughs> Is that there are two people who don't like paying taxes? Two kinds of people: hmm. men and women. Now. The weirdest thing about going back and listening to this recording was me talking about how three of my kids were homesick with a fever. And I actually had this the month before, and I'm starting to think that we actually had the Rona in the Sally house. And if you want a taste for what I sounded like when I was in the middle of this mystery illness, give episode 28 a listen and let me know what you think, because I legit think I had this thing for like a month. Now, getting back to the episode, while the relationship between taxes and economic growth is foggy, I think the real question seems to be, what are the things we want government to be doing for us? Because we're all comfortable with a socialized military, free healthcare for the elderly, and a socialized highway system, yet some of the services certain folks would deem essential, like healthcare, are fiercely debated. And I'm not going to wade into any specific policy debate, but I am going to put out a theory, and I want your thoughts on this. Part of the function of government is to ensure that people don't become victims of circumstance, which is why we fund a military, police force, fire department, and education for all citizens. And I think when we look to expand the role of government, we should be asking if it serves this purpose. And that can apply to any number of policies we talk about now. I'd love to get your thoughts, so please come visit me on YDHTY.com or find You Don't Have to Yell on Twitter or Facebook and let me know what you think. As always, music courtesy of Krellertak, YDHTY is produced by the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally, signing off. <laughs>